This morning we are going to begin a series in Mark's Gospel. So if you have a Bible, um, please do turn with me. Mark chapter 1, we'll read the first eight verses this morning. But um, I suppose we're really mainly focusing on the first verse. But we'll read together the first eight verses. So Mark chapter 1, this is God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, as a Christian believer, what do you most need? You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a group of Christian believers gathered here this morning, what do we most need? We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. The writer here is Mark, or John Mark. And Mark was a disciple of Peter. So what we read through Mark has has Peter's influence. What we read has come from one who was one of Jesus' closest friends on earth. We read of Mark in in Acts 12. um, After Peter was in prison, he came to Mark's house where um, believers had gathered to pray for his release. You may remember that Mark was the one Paul and Barnabas had a dispute over in Acts 15. Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, but Paul and Silas went to Syria and and Sicily. But they they by no means became enemies, or this dispute didn't didn't harm their relationship. In Colossians, Paul encourages the church to welcome Mark. In Philemon, Paul refers to Mark as a fellow worker. And in 2 Timothy, near the end of Paul's life, he asks to see Mark because, Paul says, He's very useful for me in ministry, which is just lovely to read. And we read about Mark at the end of First Peter, just about a month ago. At the end of chapter 5, in the final greetings, we read, She who is at Babylon, as commentators are fairly certain, is Rome, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And, and this is one piece of evidence that strongly suggests that Mark was writing from Rome, to mainly Gentile believers in Rome. Now, these believers had been experiencing extreme 
suffering and persecution under Nero. What is it that these first century suffering Christians most need? Well, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Mark gives there. Now, of course, they've already believed the gospel, but but that's not where it ends, is it? We'd be foolish to think that the only time we need the gospel is at the moment of conversion, and then somehow to pull it out as our entrance into heaven in the end. But to encourage these believers to keep going, to keep believing, to keep having confidence in what God is doing, they need to hear the gospel again and again and again. And so Mark gives them the facts of who Jesus is and what he came to earth to do. There are three key questions that are helpful for us to ask through Mark. If you've done Christianity Explored at any time, you will will be familiar with this. But those questions are, who is Jesus? What has he done? And then what is our response? And I think that's helpful for us to keep those questions in mind as we go through, who is Jesus, what has he done, and then what is our response? As you read through Mark, you will see there are three main responses to Jesus. There's one of amazement, one of fear, and one of offense. Well, Mark was the first gospel account written. So you'll notice that the others rely heavily upon Mark. It's also the shortest account. Um, it's, it's fast-paced. It leaves out other details that the other Gospels include. And you will notice if you read through the repeated word immediately. You see this over and over again. Mark gets to the point. He gives us the significant facts about the life of Jesus. And because of this, then, Mark is often used for evangelistic purposes, as Christianity Explored does so. But it gives the main points. It's, it's almost like a gospel tract that you could hand to someone to give them a good overview of the life of Jesus. And my prayer for us as we study Mark um, together is, is very simple. That we would have an increased passion for Jesus, for knowing him, knowing him more, and making him known to others. Well, let, let's go to the text now and let's, let's look at what Mark says. <clears throat> we see from right from the beginning, Mark gets straight to the point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, now it's hard to read those words in Scripture without Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 ringing in our ears. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when our minds go to Genesis, we think of God's powerful um, activity in history when he created the world. And we see here that as God continues his work in history, here we have the beginning, the beginning of a new creation. If you look down to verses 2 and 3, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, though the reference is written as Isaiah, there are three Old Testament quotes here. One is from Exodus, the other from Malachi, and then the other from Isaiah. <clears throat> and it's interesting because Mark writing to, to Gentile believers, but, but he actually begins with three Old Testament quotes. And what this shows us, and I think what he's trying to get to these believers that he's writing to, is that this beginning, it's, it's not a new idea, it's not a moment of spontaneity, but rather it is tied to all that God has been doing in history, and it's tied to his much broader plan of salvation. The Old Testament and New Testament, they're not two separate stories, but rather one story of God's great salvation. The reference to Exodus suggests to us that this is the beginning of a new or greater Exodus or deliverance. If we look at the Isaiah quote, Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So what we see is there is to be preparation made in the wilderness for what God is going to do. Which again reflects the Exodus narrative. Okay, Moses was prepared for his role in the desert. God's people were prepared in the wilderness before entering the promised lands. Well, Malachi then helps us to understand what this preparation is. I read two verses from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I sent my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then further, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet's, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, if you know the story of Elijah, you will know that Elijah did not die. He was taken up to heaven, and and people were waiting his return as a sign of when God would come and deliver his people. But if we turn to the other Gospels for a moment, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 17. And it was just after the transfiguration, Jesus had taken with him Peter, James, and John. And they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what had just happened until after he would be raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Jesus, they say, why do scribes say first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered, he said, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Further in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, The angel was speaking to Zechariah, John's father, telling that that John would be born. And the angel said to John that John would come in the, sorry, the angel said to Zechariah that John would come in the spirit and 
power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And further in Mark 9, um, Jesus identifies Elijah also as John the Baptist. So what I, all I'm trying to say from this is that it is clear from these Old Testament prophecies that they were speaking about John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see in verse 6, he, he even looked similar to Elijah and what he wore and, and what he ate. He came with the, the same message as Elijah, urging people to turn away from sin and turn to God. He was a stereotype prophet, if you like. And we see how God's messenger would prepare the way for God to come through this very message of turning away from sin and turning to God. Look at verse 4. Now we're thinking after years and years of silence, John, the prophet appears, baptizing in the wilderness and crying out or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the given for the forgiveness of sins. And we see that indeed many did do this. So when we read from Malachi 4, or when we read from Malachi 4, we read that the prophet would prepare the way before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Referring to the final day when, when, when Christ will return and everyone will be judged. So what we're seeing is that the way to prepare for God's final judgment is to turn from sin and turn to God and know his forgiveness. Now, John attracted a lot of attention. But of course, John wasn't the main event because his purpose was only to prepare, to point to one much greater than him who would come. Look at verse 7. John preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism was merely an outward symbol of a person who was recognizing their sin, turning away from sin and turning to God. But one will come who is greater, who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. In other words, who will accomplish a true inner change of heart and life. Who will rescue man from sin and so allow man to escape God's judgment. And so Mark announces this is the beginning. This is the beginning of God's plan to rescue his people. Because you see, God's people, their problems throughout history, man's greatest problem was always sin. It wasn't political or anything else that they might have thought it was. It was always sin. And Mark says, this is the beginning of God's plan to rescue his people, to deliver them from sin and bring them into his everlasting kingdom. And of course, this is good news. It's the beginning of the gospel. Gospel was a good news announcement. It it literally means good news. Now, it was usually at this time in the context of victory in in battle or the enthronement of a king. 
And we can find examples of this battle context in the Old Testament. But we also see this term used in the Old Testament, referring to God's salvation coming, but set in the context of God reigning. So let me give you just one clear example from Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, as God reigned in the beginning, with man under God's rule, in God's kingdom or God's place, enjoying God's blessing, so God is going to once again bring man under his rule in his kingdom to enjoy his eternal blessings of peace and happiness. God's plan has always been to restore all of creation and there is good news. There is the beginning of a new creation. When it was the birthday of Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, it was proclaimed as good news for the world. But it's interesting that the term was only ever used in the plural, as this was one piece of good news among other pieces of good news. This was one good thing for the world among many other good things for the world. But the New Testament only ever uses this word in the singular. This is the good news for the world. This good news was proclaimed by prophets long ago, and Mark now proclaims, this is it, it's time. The good news, the gospel is here. So it's the beginning of the gospel beginning of the good news of God's reign. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good news about a person. Okay, for Mark, the gospel is not a literary genre. It's not a type of writing or or a means of recording facts. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises to his people. Everything we learn about Jesus in the Gospels is how this new creation will come about. Jesus is the one who will bring once again God's people under God's reign to enjoy God's blessing. Jesus is the, the, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. And perhaps you know that Joshua means Yahweh, God saves, or God is salvation. Jesus saves. Jesus is salvation. And Jesus Christ, Christ is a word that means anointed. The Old Testament word was Messiah. And the Old Testament anointing with oil symbolized being set apart for God's service. Israel's kings were anointed. In Exodus, priests were anointed as they were set apart for a specific role. 
But by the time Mark was writing, the term Christ or Messiah was used for the promised king from the line of David. God promised David he would raise up someone from his family and establish his throne forever. And, and if you read through Mark, you will see that Christ is, is mainly prefixed with the. The Christ. And what that tells us is that we are to think of Christ as, as the role of Jesus or the position of Jesus rather than, than like a second name. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus the Messiah. The gospel of Jesus the King. And of course this tells us that Jesus Christ is the center of God's purposes. The center of God's plan of salvation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When God promised David a forever kingdom from his family in 2 Samuel 7, God says, the one who will establish this kingdom, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the one born to David's family, the one born to Mary, would have an exclusive, unique relationship with God. And see how how Mark has taken those Old Testament passages that we looked, looked at, those passages that spoke about God himself coming and has applied them to Jesus. Think how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, that is, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one born to Mary, is the eternal son of God and has come as the fulfillment of God's presence on earth to fulfill God's purpose for God's glory. And this is good news. One fully man, yet fully God, has come to bring an everlasting kingdom of joy and peace. Well, how would this kingdom come about? Well, it would begin quietly in a stable. Jesus Christ would live humbly, serving others. He would give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would come to defeat the enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And this would come through the cross. His glorious reign would come through his humble death, paying the price of sin. Sin that was not his own. As Isaiah prophesied, he he bore our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He would defeat Satan. He would break the power of sin and he would conquer death forever by his resurrection. And because of his obedience to death, God has 
highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what is the gospel? (laughs) Can you describe the gospel in just two words? Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not a thing we sign up to. It's not moral lessons. The gospel is not my life story. It's not how my life is becoming better. But it's the life story of Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and return to rule and reign. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promises and is utterly and completely God's work alone. This is what the gospel is. What does this mean for us today? Well, perhaps for these first century believers experiencing extreme persecution, as they were reminded of the gospel facts, of God's faithfulness to his promise through history, they will be assured that God will continue to be faithful, that he will complete what he has begun. And so they can have rest and peace in the promises of God. They can trust God for what he is doing. And as believers today, we need to hear the gospel again and again and again. We need to see that what God has promised, he has done. And he will complete. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can rest in the promises of God. We can trust God for what he is doing. But we will only find rest when we capture a thoroughly God-centered, Christ-centered gospel. God loved us and chose us before the foundation of the world. Through history, he promised a saviour. He sent Jesus Christ at the right time. Jesus came willingly. He obeyed perfectly. He died sacrificially. He was raised powerfully by the Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit caused us to see the truth of the gospel that we might believe and receive Christ. And as we receive Christ by faith, so we receive all his benefits. His perfect life becomes our perfect life. That is, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. His death and punishment for our sin in our place frees us from God's punishment. Brings us into eternal relationship with God. And gives us the hope of heaven. Life under the rule of King Jesus. Enjoying his blessings of joy and peace and satisfaction forever. You see, our peace and our confidence and our hope does not rest on us but on what Jesus has done for us, dealt with our sin, and brought us to God. 
And once we have grasped what the gospel is, then our lives and ministries become about Jesus. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. It's a phrase that's often used, and sometimes perhaps people aren't even totally sure what that means. It means our lives and ministries are about Jesus. Our lives become about what God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ. Our lives and ministries become about Jesus and making him known. So to be gospel-centered in our lives, at home, at work and wherever else, we make home life, we make work life, or wherever we are, we make it about Jesus. And to do that, we put others' needs, desires, before our own. We deny ourselves. We speak about Jesus Christ. And when we speak about ministry in the local church, what do we mean by that? Well, we're talking about a means to making Jesus Christ known who he is and what he has done. We're not primarily talking about socializing or meeting physical or psychological needs. Now, of course, that has benefits. But if that's as far as it goes, it's not a gospel-centered ministry. Because the gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you do not know Jesus, may you turn to him. May you know who he is. May you know sins forgiven and peace with God. But as we go forward as a local church, and again, as we look to September, it's a time when we do thinking and planning and things start up again, albeit a bit differently to normal. Whatever we plan, whatever we do, may it be about Jesus. May we have a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it drive us. May it motivate us. May we be amazed over and over again at God's work in the gospel of Jesus Christ.